Welcome to Lynn Cullen Live, talk radio without the static. Email your questions and comments to lynn at pghcitypaper.com. And now your host, Lynn Cullen. Whoa, things are moving fast. A lot of things to talk about uh, today, but there's nothing new about that these days. It is uh, the 27th of June. It's a Wednesday, rainy Wednesday here in Pittsburgh. Um, the Allegheny County District Attorney, Stephen Zapala, will uh, have a news conference at 11 o'clock, uh, an hour from now, um, in, in which he will uh, detail the charges uh, brought this morning against uh, East Pittsburgh Police Officer Michael Rosfeld uh, for criminal homicide, I believe, which is a catch-all term. Uh, and within it falls everything from first-degree murder to involuntary manslaughter. Uh, so that the uh, extent of uh, the charge, the murder charge, uh, has yet to be determined. But uh, Officer Rossfeldt uh, was arraigned uh, this morning, uh, fingerprinted, all the all the stuff. But uh, one rather extraordinary thing that happened um, is that he has been released. Um, this is unusual in a murder charge, um, and the district attorney's office just put out another statement. Uh, just a half hour ago uh, in regard to the fact that uh, it was a $250,000 unsecured bail that was set, which means he didn't have to put up anything. He could walk out, which he did, and um, if he flees, he's, uh, you know, he's, they charge him a quarter of a million dollars. Uh, surprising. Uh, and the uh, DA's spokesperson has released this statement. On the issue of bail, our office argued vigorously against the setting of bail, citing both the Pennsylvania state constitution and statute, which indicates that persons charged with a crime that can result in life in prison are not entitled to bail. We believe the judge ruling on bail was improper, but we do not plan on contesting it at this time. So um, for, for what that's worth, um, this is a very, I think, speedy uh, arraignment and charge for a police officer and, and in a police officer shooting. And uh, I suspect that the constant presence in the streets of Pittsburgh of uh, so many uh, demonstrators uh, perhaps uh, hurried things along. So uh, homicide charges have been filed uh, the DA will answer reporters' questions in a um, little less than an hour. Also expected today from the district attorney's office is another uh, arrest, and that would, I guess the arrest has happened, but the charge, um, an arraignment of a, I think, still unidentified Juvenile. This would be the uh, third person, the other person who ran from the police car, uh, who was not shot in the back, who managed to get away. He is being charged with uh, the drive-by shooting that occurred um, about a half hour before Antoine Rose's murder when that car was stopped. So... There will be a trial of a police officer. Uh, those don't go real well around these parts. Uh, so 
in my memory, and granted it's faulty, but in my memory, I can't recall a conviction for murder. Was there ever? Juries around here don't seem to think that cops are capable of murder, despite um, obvious evidence to the contrary. So, um, you know, to to spare uh, Officer Roosevelt from from conviction, all you need in a jury, of course, is one one juror refusing to uh, go along with the majority. So that's where we are, Um, I think, uh, rather stunningly fast, and uh, a lot more information uh, to be learned uh, later today. So this is a big news day uh, locally. And, of course, it's always a big news day um, nationally. I want to, um, given the fact that, uh, let, me, let me just stay local for, uh, for a, a moment, uh, to bring your attention to something that was written by the uh, county controller, Chelsea Wagner, uh, on on this topic, on the topic of why it's difficult to get a police officer convicted of murder in uh, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and uh, Chelsea Wagner says that it is time to deal with Pittsburgh's deep, ugly, insidious racial disparities. Now, this is strong stuff, and Chelsea Wagner has written this in uh, the new Pittsburgh uh, Alt Alternative Weekly, uh, Pittsburgh Current, uh, founded just weeks ago by uh, former city paper editor Charlie Deach and uh, available uh, online now. I have uh, tweeted out uh, this. We'll put this also on our Facebook page. Um, And it's a a long piece, but she does not, she does not hold back. And let me just say, if this were written by a black office holder, it would be, I mean, it would be stunning enough that it was written by a white office holder from a storied uh, Democratic Party uh, family, the Wagners, uh, I think makes it uh, perhaps more powerful. Uh, That, too, speaking to the racism in these parts, that a white voice saying this will garner more attention than a black voice saying this. She is specifically addressing (coughs) the kind of racism that leads to the death of a 17-year-old shot in the back uh, by a police officer who decided he was going to be judge, jury, and executioner before much of anything was known. And in fact, as we know today, Antoine Rose did not shoot anybody. Uh, the, the person that the police are now charging and have visual evidence of was another person in that vehicle. If I might digress for a moment... In one of the rallies that's been held in Pittsburgh, uh, a man who I was not identified as far as I know, said something that so hit me in the gut that I have not been able to get it out of my head. For those who would say, yeah, Antoine Rose didn't 
shoot that what was he doing in a vehicle that was involved in a drive-by shooting this is no innocent kid right that's what some people will say and what this man said he spoke as a black man he spoke as a black father and he said our kids black kids our kids are not allowed to make any mistakes and boy did that hit me I know an awful lot of people who have run from police I know an awful lot including myself as young people it's it's not unusual to find yourself at an underage party where there's drinking going on someone calls the cops and everybody runs right we run and not for a minute do we think that a bullet will pierce our back. But a black child in a similar situation, perhaps even a little bit more than an underage drinking party, making a miscalculation, ending up with the wrong people in the wrong car at the wrong time, which can happen to anyone that is not developed totally, right? A white kid can reasonably expect to survive such a mistake. But a black kid. No. Antoine Rose did nothing. Committed no crime that would carry the death penalty. And yet he is dead judged guilty and executed by an officer of the law. And the fact that he was black had a lot to do with why he's dead. White kids making bad decisions can run and expect to live. Black kids making wrong choices can run and expect to die. I happen to know my, did my own son run? No, one of his friends did. There was a point when my son was, you know, an idiot kid, and he and some pals were in a um, Pittsburgh park, and they were, uh, I think, uh, sharing uh, some marijuana cop showed up one of Sam's friends ran took off like a bat out of hell that cop didn't start chasing him and shoot him in the back the other kids my son included stayed and the cop didn't arrest them because he found nothing on them but I received a phone call that night, right after, from the police officer, who informed me, he asked if I was the mother, and I said yes, because he had gotten my number from my son, and he said, I wanted to tell you that your son was in the park, and I believe they had marijuana. One of, the, one of his friends ran away, but I thought you should know. And I didn't take any action other than talking to them. But um, I thought you should know. And I thanked him. That's how white parents interact with the police. They get phone calls from the police saying, Your son, and I talked to him, 
black parents get phone calls that their son's been shot in the back and is currently located in the morgue. The disparity with which white people and black people are treated is, is there for all to see. And what we're learning in Trump's America is how blind so many Americans are. So back to Chelsea Wagner. She says, honoring Antoine Rose's life requires more than bringing justice to the officer who heinously shot an unarmed fleeing boy three times in the back. She says, we must all confront the deep and ugly disparities of race and privilege in this region. Disparities that run deeper and are more insidious than nearly anywhere else in our country. Whoa. So here we have a, an elected official here actually saying that Pittsburgh is more racist than most places in the country. And later in her essay, she says this is statistically, I mean studies show. It's not she's making it up. When I first came to Pittsburgh, long time ago, one of the things that struck me most, by far, was the racism. Yep. If you're not used to living here and then you come here from someplace else, a slightly more enlightened place like Madison, Wisconsin, you come here and it hits you in the face. And I've spoken about it often, how stunned I was by it. And so she goes on to talk about Pittsburgh as a tale of two cities and that the reality in Pittsburgh for people who are black and people who are white is totally, totally different. And she says for black people here, the designation of most livable city or every time we're on another list of the best cities, the top ten, the blah, blah, blah. She says, they, they know that that's not talking about the Pittsburgh they live in. And she says, I don't believe that justice will ever be served in Antoine's name. It's far more important that we all take ownership of our racial divide much more than we do the superficial designations that land us on all these, you know, best of lists. Candidly and plainly, she says, things are far worse here and made worse yet by all the hypocrisy and the propaganda. that, And I think she's aiming this at the mayor's office and at all the, you know, the Pittsburgh boosterism that goes on. Um, the hypocrisy and the propaganda that works relentlessly to silence the voices of our marginalized communities. And while, of course, there are many white residents within our region who struggle, those struggles should never prevent us as a community from recognizing the disparate struggles and experiences of people of color. She 
she really lays it out. This goes on and on. She says she does not think that in Pittsburgh there is any real awareness of the daily traumatization, death by a thousand cuts that black people in this community experience. If there was any awareness, she said, I don't believe so many white Pittsburghers would ask, why did those protesters move to some other location? This is very inconvenient. And then she addresses the elephant in the room of why she has as a white Pittsburgher, this awareness. So unusual. And she says, let me candidly admit that I too did not fully grasp the depth and breadth of racial bias in this city until I became the wife of a black man who grew up here and until I became the mother of two biracial boys both of whom proudly identify as black that is not to say I was unaware but there is a distinct difference and then she goes after people who would poo-poo uh, racism in Pittsburgh and say it's no different than any other city and then she doubles down it is far worse she says and that truth is supported by statistics and poignantly demonstrated by the lived experience of far too many people of color in our region a recent study she says showed that only listen to this one half of 1% of residents of the Pittsburgh metropolitan area live in a racially or ethnically diverse neighborhood. Highly diverse. It ain't enough to have like I have. I got one black neighbor. That's not enough. A true mixing. In the metropolitan region, Point five percent and guys that is the lowest percentage of any metropolitan area surveyed similar survey that's a percentage time and time again I hear from people of color who have left Pittsburgh believing it is the most racist place they have ever lived And then she says what I said, as some have questioned why Antoine ran from the police. I think of the many times my friends and I ran from police when we were gathering at a park after hours in Beachview. I think of the outcomes that were different for my white friends and family who were stopped by police and warned to go home. When the same happened to my husband and his friends, in Pittsburgh they were detained they were taken to the station on the north side she says I also think of the experience of new Pittsburghers uh, people of color who have come here recruited to come to work in Pittsburgh's uh, burgeoning uh, technology sector and she said one friend in particular is the mother of a black college-age son who is experiencing this area and is stunned because he is quote perceived to be poor and uneducated simply because of the color of his skin 
something he never, ever had experienced in any other place that he had lived. She says, this is often subtle. This is stuff white people just don't know. She says, but I think of the subtle, inconvenient adjustments that my husband and I make to make life easier. Now listen to this. For example, I am the one to call a new service company if we need something done at her house to avoid the sort of racial profiling that has otherwise produced delays or no-shows. In other words, if her husband, a black man, calls, people may or may not show up. If she calls, her white privilege means she will be treated respectfully. She said, I think of my husband pulling aside a young black kid just entering his teenage years to warn him about cutting through our yard or any other yards in the neighborhood for fear that he could be mistaken for something more sinister than a young boy simply having fun with his friends and who then, like Antoine Rose, would end up with bullets in his back for simply doing what kids do. She goes on to cite infant mortality rates within our black community that are worse than those in developing countries, wage inequality, poverty figures that dwarf, again, our metropolitan counterparts and are situated within a geographic area identified as having among the highest concentration of hate groups in the country. Those are just a few unfortunate statistics, says Chelsea Wagner. There are certainly many more. She says, even though I have black children and I'm married to a black man, I will never experience first person or know how it feels day in and day out to be black in Pittsburgh. Yet, if nothing else, I am certainly now well aware of how terribly painful it is. And she gets on the churches here. And she gets on the corporate community. And she says we must all contribute and recognize that even the smallest gesture makes a difference. It's a pretty extraordinary piece. And as I said, it is available at Pittsburgh Current, the new alternative weekly started by Charlie Deitch, who was fired here as the editor of City Paper for, much like Rob Rogers was fired, for doing his job. By the way, uh, speaking of Rob Rogers, I happened to pick up The Week magazine today, and there's one of his cartoons in The Week. So he has a national audience, he just doesn't have an audience here where he lives. Okay, so there's that, and I think that's big. I really do. Um, Roger writes, speaking of mistakes, white people like that young cop will get away with his mistake. He's just assuming, yeah, the cop is a young guy, too. And he'll, he made a mistake, didn't he? It, it took somebody's life. But Roger's saying he'll get away with it. Because any jury picked here is sure to hold at least one total racist, right? If this is one of the most racist areas in the country. 
Trump makes disastrous gaffes every minute. He doesn't seem to pay for it. Obama never, hardly did, you know, comported himself with incredible dignity and care. So, we have a caller. Caller, go ahead, please. Caller, hello? Hello? Hey, Lynn. Yeah. Yeah. I've got to make a suggestion. Don't take it the wrong way. But uh, I think you should take the summer off and come back in November after the election when we have the House. Maybe we'll have a better perspective on things. You know? Why? Do I seem uh, out of sorts today? You seem pretty... Yeah, it seems like this is all getting to you pretty bad. It's getting to me, too. I agree. But you have to do it every day. I think uh, you, when you came back from the last time, you were feeling a lot better. I think you're better off giving a break from it. Well, I'm, I, as I said, I, I am thinking of, like, taking a week uh, maybe off. I, I, you know, I've been back from my last uh, sabbatical for four months. And it could be four months in the Trump era is all I'm good for, and then I need, I need a break. <laughs> but I don't think I need a month like I did last time. Um, so we'll, we'll see. I appreciate it. I am worn okay. down. I'm, I'm worn Bye. down. Thank you. I mean, I don't know anyone who isn't. I mean, Roger says in this email, he says, is anyone else's liver suffering the past year and a half? I'm talking to myself a lot, too, he says. I guess I'm not very tough. Yeah. I'm trying. (laughs) I do, I feel this stuff very deeply. And, uh, I really I really do. Okay, so what do we got here? Um I again, the Supreme Court decisions yesterday were <laughs> This is why if anyone talks to me about civility, I'm going to I'm going to punch them. I'll tell you why. The Supreme Court decisions that came down yesterday, these 5-4 rulings, 5-4 rulings, they were brought to you by the Republicans of the Congress, Mitch McConnell mostly, for refusing to do what their constitutional duty was, which was to act on the nomination of Merrick Garland by the President of the United States to be seated on the Supreme Court. They refused to do so. And so they were able to put this politicized why am I blanking on his name? They don't play fair. They never have. They don't play by the rules. They're not gentlemen. They are uncivil. And and so, God forbid, if any of the justices currently on the court retires or dies and Donald Trump thinks he's going to appoint another justice, ain't going to happen. That's if Democrats show they've learned anything. That's if Democrats shown they've found a backbone somewhere and understand the fight they're in. This decision yesterday upholding Trump's travel ban is one of the worst decisions uh, probably in the history of the court and it will go down um, historically as one of the worst decisions. Um, 
Chief Justice John Roberts trying to thread the needle as he's so um, inclined to do. Wrote a decision that is mind-boggling. Mind-boggling to me. The news came down yesterday during the program and I just saw the Supreme Court upholds travel ban and Susan and I at the time were engaged in so many other, uh, you know, horrors that I, I registered it, but I couldn't quite, not until yesterday afternoon when I had an opportunity to see what that decision said. Uh, I was just blown away. I think Dana Milbank uh, has it about uh, right, and let me find. some of what he said. He says that this court, the Roberts Court, is actually an exceedingly unusual court in its makeup in that none of the justices have ever held elected office. And that fact struck me because I thought, really? You mean other courts had, yeah, there was always like one <laughs> or so who had perhaps at one point, uh, you know, run for office. And why is that important? And, and Milbank thinks it's important because he says he thinks this court, specifically the conservatives on it, are naive, are naive about the way that their decisions will resonate, will affect the political system that they have never had to deal with. So they can thread needles and have their flowery language and say, this is narrow, we are simply saying the president has the right uh, Mr. Trump's comments do not come into the picture here. Yeah, they can say all that. They can be naive. But everybody else who doesn't have their la-di-da law degrees knows what that travel ban was about. And the upholding of it puts the Supreme Court's imprimatur on religious, flat-out religious bigotry. And so, Milbank says, so here we have the justices scoring points as if in a debating competition, but missing the big picture, missing what their decision will do to discrimination and the president's regard for the rule of law. And here is where he puts it clearly. The legal test here was whether a reasonable person would think that the travel ban reflected a religious bias. Duh! This was the third iteration, right, of the ban. And remember, Trump was not happy with this third one because it threw in two other countries that he hadn't had in the first, two non-Muslim countries. Threw in Venezuela. Threw in North Korea. But it applied in Venezuela only to a very few people, government officials. And North Korea... How many North Koreans are traveling outside the country or trying to get out in a legal manner like that? I mean, come on, they can't. But those countries were thrown in to give the justices who wanted to support the travel ban cover. 
Well, uh, how can you call this a Muslim ban? We got uh, North Korea here. To dismiss all the things that Trump said, where it was just flat out. In fact, Robert says in his decision that the many anti-Muslim statements made by the president were made as extrinsic statements. What the fuck? This is the debating boys, the preppy debating boys. And what did he say? Called for a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the country. Rudy Giuliani famously said that Trump used the phrase Muslim ban and, uh, and had said to Giuliani, figure out how to do it legally. We know that what this was about was keeping Muslims out. There is no doubt. Everybody knew it. The U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops in an amicus brief specifically cited Trump's disparaging comments. They didn't think they were extrinsic. The Catholic bishop said his repeated proposals to ban Muslims is blatant religious discrimination. Justice Kagan in a dissent said, so, in other words, now, according to this, some president who might be a total anti-Semite could ban all Israelis from entering the United States if he simply didn't use the word Jew. All right, I'll leave it for a bit, but I, I have to tell you, Hang your heads in shame. Caller, are you still there? Hi, Lynn. Yes, I am. Okay. Um, yeah, the, well, I don't buy the, I'll buy the Federalist Debate Society folder all in the case, perhaps, of Roberts and Kennedy. What a disappointment Kennedy is. Uh, swing both my rear end. Um, but not in the case of Scalito and, and Gorsuch. Um, he's the justice you're, you were blanking on. That's right, Neil Gorsuch. The, uh, that was just, you know, my yeah, wishful thinking, wiping him out. From, uh, from President Obama by uh, completely unprecedented action uh, by Mitch McConnell. Right. Um, Gorsuch, by the way, his mother, Ann Buford Gorsuch, yeah. Was Scott Pruitt of her day. Yes. Um, she was an industry shill uh, during the Reagan administration mm. who was actively working against the uh, the industry she was supposed to regulate and was uh, eventually her actions were so brazen that uh, Reagan was re uh, had to re withdraw her nomination from a cabinet post. Um, so the, the, the ranced apple didn't fall far from the, the rotten tree there. Um, yeah, there, look, this civility bullshit, they're, they're brazen and shameless. I mean, there's this whole cohort of them that feel no compunction about violating norms, traditions, standards, or even laws, and this just continuing onward. Um, is there any doubt in your mind I'm going to throw out a couple of hypotheticals. If Hillary Clinton had won, do you think if the, the Republicans had re retained control of the Senate that they would have, do you doubt for a moment that they simply would not have considered any of her nominees? They would have kept that seat open as long as possible. They would have kept it open until, you know, the next election cycle, until 2020. They wouldn't have cared if, you know, several more judges retired or, or passed away. Do we have any doubt of that? Well, you know, I just, I just hope that Democrats, you know, get uh, tougher.
because their namby-pamby, you know, the court has just come down with another abhorrent decision. Yeah, another hor- ridiculous decision wow. that even, even though um, uh, public sector unions um, still have to represent uh, uh, employees who don't want to join the union, they have no right to collect dues. So from those, from those okay. So if they if people who are represented by the union don't have to pay dues to the union, how long is the union going to last? Correct. Yeah. So they just are yeah. the, the ruling today five four. I'm sure. Um, and guess what? Five four decision decided earlier when Scalia was still alive that uh, the public sector unions still did have to represent those who didn't wish to join. I'm sorry, what? So, yeah. It, that was decided under the Scalia court, by the way. Yeah. Well, The idea that they, there was a ruling that they still had to represent the members who, um, who, you know, who didn't wish to join. But in that case, it was, uh, but they were still, of course, required to, you know, pay dues. But it's just, you know, in this, you know, original constitutionalist, you know, Go pound salt. They, they, they pull the rationales out of the nether regions for these decisions. Yeah. Well, there, I, I've, I've used the word for decades now about Republicans. It seems sort of quaint now, but they're shameless. <laughs> they're yeah. just and flat about out shameless. Yeah. I was, I, was, it, it just, I was reading yesterday. Are you familiar with the, the uh, scandal involving Theranos? Yes. The, uh, yes. Okay. Elizabeth Holmes uh, was who was touted as the first, the youngest female billionaire, Silicon Valley startup billionaire, um, who uh, supposedly was going to revolutionize the, the you know the, the blood testing industry, the diagnostic industry. She's actually out there with her, you know, equally odious boyfriend. Mm-hmm. Um. You know, after being indicted by the SEC yeah. on fraud charges, yes, attempting to raise money for another startup. <laughs> well, there's the shamelessness. She, you know, she swindled people out of yeah. millions. Well, if somebody was promoting, was promoting a who would give money to her? It could have endangered lives. Yeah, yeah. Because it would have given erroneous blood blood testing results for various diseases. And she said in an interview that it was time for her, quote, unquote, rebound. Shameless, nakedly shameless and brazen. Yeah, yeah. All righty, Who does that ju- remind you of? Yeah. I, I, <laughs> all right, shameless and brazen. Yeah, it reminds me of a lot of people I can think of, all of them Republicans. But thank you. Appreciate yeah. the call. Thank you. Bye-bye. There, bye. There was a piece in the Washington Post today that rips your guts out, too. It's it's just um, a reporter interviewed uh, Muslims in America that are impacted by the Supreme Court holding up this ban. And you know when when these take all the fancy talk away and the legalese, and you see the impact on a single human being. I mean, it can rip you apart. They start with a a man who is an American citizen. Although he was born here, his family took him back to Yemen. He was raised uh, in Yemen, pretty much. Came back to the United States. Uh, he married in Yemen, three little girls, three daughters. And Yemen, as you know, is a hellhole right now. It's war, war-torn. And this man, who's an American, has been trying desperately to get his family, his three children and his wife, into this country, his country, And yesterday's decision will make that impossible. 
And he says that his little girls, ages 6, 9, and 13, have seen war waging being waged around them. Their grandmother was killed uh, uh, earlier in the year just sitting in her home, a stray bullet right through her head. These little girls are living in that kind of danger and every time they talk to their father they have said the same thing. They have been waiting for the Supreme Court to make a decision on this case and they were assuming that any American Supreme Court would say, you can't, you can't use religion as a means of stopping people from, and never mind that any of these countries, Muslim countries on the list, not a single citizen of any one of those countries has perpetrated a terrorist attack on the United States. He doesn't have the heart to tell him. He found himself yesterday after the ruling driving around in a daze. He said, I feel so weak. I feel so weak. I was strong until six months ago. I was saying, it's just this administration. It's going to change. We know the United States. We know America. Our Constitution is strong. And now he just says, I feel stupid. And to think, last fall, I was on the verge of buying a three-bedroom townhouse. He'd sent pictures to his wife and children saying, here's where you'll live. He's planning on leaving the country. I suppose that'll make the make Trump happy and the others. And then there's a story of a professor who teaches at uh he's an Iranian, so that's one of the countries on the list. And he is a petroleum engineering professor at the University of North Dakota. And um, he is married to an American. He has a child. He oversees eight PhD students, has four government-funded research projects underway. He has not been able to get a green card simply based on where he came from. And he said that after the decision, he and his wife, this is an American woman, have made up their minds they are leaving the country. He said, I need to be able to live someplace where my family members can come and visit and I can visit them and return to my country. I don't want to live with this constant fear of being blocked from entering my country. And on and on and on. Real people, real lives, like the children. And is it just me, or are you still wondering about the 50 kids up there on Ohio River Boulevard? Who's working to find their parents? Why is there no media in this town that's on this story? I believe we were told that the youngest of the children at Holy Family Institute is four years old.
We have a federal judge ruling today that these kids have got to be reunited with their parents, I think if they're under six or seven, within just giving them two more weeks. Is anyone doing stories on the kids there? Have they let local media in? I have to say I don't know because I don't watch local news. Have you seen reporters or any of our elected officials being allowed in, asking questions? Are they asking questions? I'm asking you because maybe some of you might know. Unbelievable. Milton has sent me, so, uh, Sotomayor uh, uh, wrote the uh, most blistering dissent, and apparently uh, her rage was so palpable. She read it from the bench. Her rage was so palpable that it was astonishing to some who have covered the court. Nina Totenberg, for instance, who's covered the court for decades, said there is no way to explain to you the the level of her obvious rage. Robert's decision also nullified the Korematsu decision, which is the despicable Supreme Court decision of 1944 in which the court decided it was perfectly okay that the president was in his rights to force Japanese Americans into concentration camps for national security purposes. The Roberts Court had the gall to mention that as they did something equally abhorrent, equally un-American, by saying, because of national security, it is okay to literally bar people of another religion. Of course, they didn't say that. But we all know it. Sotomayor says, by blindly accepting the government's misguided invitation to sanction a discriminatory policy motivated by animosity toward a disfavored group, all in the name of a superficial claim of national security. The court has redeployed the same dangerous logic underlying the Korematsu decision and merely replaces one gravely wrong decision with another. New York Times editorial today on January 27, 2017, as Mr. Trump signed the first version of the travel ban, he read... <coughs> Excuse me, he read out its official title. Protecting the nation from foreign terrorist entry into the United States. And then he looked up and said to the camera, we all know what that means. That's what he said. Protecting the nation from foreign terrorist entry into... We all know what that means, he said. And we do. Muslims. And the Times says, yeah, indeed we do. Even if five Supreme Court justices refuse to admit it. A day that will live in infamy. So many, I mean, practically every day is a day that will live in infamy now in this country. All three branches of our government have gone to the dark side. All we've got, the only hope we have, 
is the November election. And it has got to be resounding. And if it's not, I think it's over. Okay, that's it for me. See you tomorrow. Lynn Cullen Live, Monday through Friday from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. and archived at pghcitypaper.com. The opinions expressed on Lynn Cullen Live are those of the host and do not necessarily reflect the viewpoints of Pittsburgh City Paper or its advertisers.